This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Welcome back to Lit Pulpit. Uh, Claude here with Austin. Austin, how are you today? I'm great, Claude. How you doing? Doing well. I'm looking forward to jumping into this section of Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. We're looking uh, at Florence's Prayer. That's the chapter section. It's within the second section of the novel, Prayers of the Saints. And we are getting... um, a look at Florence, and we're getting a look at Florence, who is uh, John's John and Roy's aunt, uh, Gabriel's sister. They are, if you've been following along with us, uh, we're we're doing a read through this important novel, which teaches us a lot about uh, what it means to um, to grapple with uh, an authentic uh, realization of Christian faith, and and Baldwin's novel as he explores that in a. Uh, really legalistic storefront Pentecostal holiness church setting. And here we get uh, Florence um, as, as the characters are in the night Terry service here, here's Florence and she's having her come to Jesus moment. Um, she's, she's uh, beginning her, her prayer. Her voice sings out, um, sings out this uh, old famous hymn. It's me. It's me. Oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer, not my father, not my mother, but it's me. Oh Lord. So this, here's here's this really it's a true altar call, you know. Um, we're we're uh, we're pastors. We we uh, we get excited when these things happen, right? When you see somebody that's responding um, to uh, to the message of uh, of grace. What's interesting when that happens, you don't you don't know what's going on with them internally. But what's really interesting about this moment where Florence is actually having um, kind of this come to Jesus moment, the novel tells us how she's being viewed by her brother, Gabriel, who is uh, John's father, stepfather, technically, uh, and a minister in the church. Um, Austin, how, how, does, how does Gabriel view this come to Jesus moment for his sister? And then what does that sort of open up for us to consider? Well, Gabriel does not represent us as ministers uh, in a very positive light as we're treated by Baldwin to his... No, he, he does not. <laughs> to, to kind of what's going through his head when he sees his sister having this come to Jesus moment because he's he's embittered by it. There's, there's a sense of uh, almost resentment to it. And um, there's also a, an awareness that, that it's for him and his perception of it, that it's not something of humility that's brought her here, but more a, a motivation of fear. And um, and you see him processing all of this. And instead of as a minister being uh, thankful for and excited by and uh, rendered um, joyous about this event, he's 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 embittered. There's 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 a a quality of um, of suspicion about what she's doing and of, of ultimately just not being happy about it. And uh, 
Baldwin deserves a lot of the credit for taking us into his mind there and also into Florence's mind, too, to, to really understand the dynamics that are at play in this. But one of the things that's so rich about it is that that doesn't come out of nowhere for us as readers. We've now been given some of the backstory of their relationship as siblings through the years, and it's been fraught from, from moment one. Uh, so it doesn't come out of nowhere that this is the way that he's feeling, but it certainly is not the way a minister uh, ought to feel about somebody coming to faith in, in, in a moment like this. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it really, you know, we've already seen Gabriel um, kind of his, you know, true colors. And one of the questions in the novel is going to be, you know, this question of can, can someone like Gabriel really change? But we've already, we've already seen him at the beginning um, embody a real toxic sort of faith. And that becomes, um, you know, emphasized again here where um, the the novel says uh, that Florence knows, right? Or Flor- we're getting Florence's sense of this, right? She, she knew, it says that she knew that Gabriel rejoiced, not that her humility might lead her to grace, but only that some private anguish had brought her low. Uh, her song revealed she was suffering and this her brother was glad to see. This had always been his spirit. Nothing had ever changed. Nothing ever would. Uh, and then, similar to John, uh, Gabriel uh, Florence rather has this moment where her pride flares up, and she doesn't want to have this come to Jesus moment because if if doing in doing so, if the Gabriel is God's anointed, as the novel says, she would rather die and endure hell for all eternity than bow before His altar. But she strangled her pride, rising to stand with the congregation in the holy space, still singing, I'm standing in the need of prayer. Um, wow, this is really, I mean, it's its the same cycle. And this is really interesting because I think it, uh, you know, it's very biblical in this sense, right? We can't really understand the story of Jacob without understanding, you know, Isaac, without sending Abraham, or, you know, the foremothers of forefathers, all these sort of things. We're seeing these sort of cycles, right, um, that that are happening. And so we're we're learning that John's story is not just John's story, but it's his, his, his immediate family story. Story. But it's not just his immediate family story; it's his generational story, um, and and all of that really comes through just in these first few paragraphs of of Florence's uh, Florence's chapter. Um, what do you, yeah, what what do you what do you make of Florence's come to Jesus moment? What do you think is motivating her? Does this strike you as as, as something that's sort of genuine? It, you know, we're told that she's dealing with sickness, uh, so so she has a sense of wanting to be healed. How, how does this? kind of come to Jesus moment strike you for Florence, because we're going to see more sort of conversion type moments uh, throughout the course of the novel. And I think one of the questions is, you know, are they, are they being shown as, as genuine or are there ulterior motives at work that are unhealthy? How, How does this, how does Florence's moment strike you? Well, I think it's so human and that there's always ulterior motives at work in us all the time, but that doesn't mean that God's not big enough uh, to be aware of our ulterior motives and still be at work through the power of the spirit. I, I think we ought to acknowledge that given how uncomfortable she is about her brother being uh, the minister in this moment and, and how much bitterness there is, that there has to be something larger at work that would still drive her mm-hmm. forward. Ooh, it's not good. like there are not other churches that she could go to the next day, you know, and and, that's good, uh, yeah. and pray in and, 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 and have a, a, another kind of conversion experience in. Uh, so there's clearly something larger going on there. But yeah, it is. It is on its surface, motivated by fear. She's sick. She feels like she's, you know, on the precipice of death. Uh, They've just been through this psychologically harrowing event with Roy. 
Uh, there's just a lot going on in the moment that that um, are inciting reasons for her to come forward. But I, I think that it would be um, both uh, reductive and unfair to to not think that the spirit is still at, at, at work in this, because I don't know that Florence would have come forward if uh, there were not really compelling uh, reasons to, to, to do so. Mm. I like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I forget how rich this section is really just over these two or three pages of her first kind of th- this prayer moment for, for Florence, because she forgets, she's wondering, how, you know, how, how do I pray? She hasn't been in church in years. And then she's beginning to remember how her mother prayed. Uh, and then she's, go- she's sort of wondering, um, you know, am I supposed to kneel at, at, you know, in front of the altar at this point in the service, or am I supposed to come back and, and do this later? It reminds me of just, you know, how much, uh, how much of a um, privilege it is when people come to a, a new church for the first time, they're, they're really kind of putting themselves out there. And you can kind of see her experiencing some of that, like, hey, is this a point where I do this? Or is this a point where I don't do this? But there's also these interesting moments where she, she sort of wrestles with her, her social status, and she, she doesn't want to look like common folk in how she's responding to the Holy Spirit, which I think is really fascinating, the sort of classism that's sort of coming out, which loops in a little bit to her pride. But then there's this beautiful moment um, where she remembers, you know, that that God had promised to, to uh, give sight to the blind, uh, help the lame walk, uh, raise the dead from the grave. And so as she's struggling to know what to pray, uh, Baldwin writes this, uh, Florence remembered one phrase, which now she muttered against the knuckles that bruised her lips. Lord, help my unbelief. And, and that's what she can muster, right, in her prayer, which I think is just really powerful. Um, and then right after that, we get this sense, uh, or, or we're told that a message had come to Florence, um, that had come to Hezekiah, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. So she's also coming with this real sense of urgency, this kind of prophetic urgency, which will get fulfilled as the novel goes forward. So she comes in need. She comes with this sense of kind of like a a calling. She comes in need of grace and mercy. And all of this is happening here, which I think is really powerful. And then then her moment of prayer carries us back in time to her mother's prayer. And then we're the scope of the novel sort of widens, and we go back about 25 years uh, or so to the 1900s, uh, to 1900 specifically, with uh, Florence, her mother, and Gabriel uh, in the South. And we sort of see the context in which um, Florence grows up in and how she relates to Gabriel and her mother, uh, which then brings us back into sort of this the cycle of how John Roy, and Roy relate to Gabriel too. So we see this sort of uh, unfolding even as we go further back in time. Um, the time piece I think is really interesting. Uh, how, how do you, like time travel in novels, you know, changing sort of um, <laughs> the narrative timeline is, is a really risky thing. How, how does what, what does this achieve? Like, why does Baldwin do that? What's what's the impact on you as a reader that we that we go from this powerful moment in Florence's prayer, and then now we go back to her mother's prayer and back in the setting? Well, I think it's a beautiful and important storytelling technique in general, but I think that this gives us another way of uh, explaining why we would pick Go Tell It on the Mountain as the first book in uh, uh, a series that we're calling Lit Pulpit hosted by two pastors, which is to say, this isn't just uh, kind of narrative, uh, chronological uh, movement within a novel as it is. It's also, it's, it's, it's captured under Baldwin's title for this section, The Prayers of the Saints. 
And so what I mean by that is that what Baldwin is indicating to us is that not only do we have the prayers that are taking place in the present moment, not only Florence's prayer and not only those prayers of the saints who were surrounding, praying her through, but it's also gesturing toward the prayers of her mother, the prayers that she quite literally heard her mother pray that she's now remembering, the prayers that her mother prayed for her and for Gabriel when they were children, but not only for her mother, but also the prayers of her grandmother, whom she never even knew, who was a slave and who uh, in uh, Florence's remembrance, she can recall her mother telling the story of her grandmother, recounting what it was like that day when she first heard news uh, that the institution of slavery had been abolished and that, that, that she was free. And she has this rich, uh, brief but rich narration here where, where suddenly the Exodus story is not abstract at all. Uh, when it talks about uh, the scriptural language of I've seen your misery and oppression and I've heard your cry and I've come to set you free, that is the way that Florence's grandmother experienced that moment. And that was, as she says here in her mind, that was an answer to prayer. And so really what Baldwin's doing is he's not only taking us back generations so that we understand better how we've arrived at the present, but he's saying that all of this has been bathed in prayer and that there has been intentional prayer over this whole family line. And that's a way that he covers uh, the actual content and narration going all the way back to, um, you know, 1865 up through the present. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Ooh, yeah, that that's so interesting because I, I hadn't I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms, and I, I think that's really helpful. That the sort of um, the the really that prayers of the saints lens of the whole section to really see the interconnectedness of uh, of of the prayers of this family right through the generations right the sort of almost cloud of witnesses dynamic to um, to to draw on Hebrews twelve that this is what this family is experiencing that this really isn't just just as the Christian life isn't just your individual story but it's actually this 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 cloud of witnesses we belong to this this family this sainthood um, that's what's happening for this family as well right it's not just a story of John it's not just a story of Gabriel it's not just a story of Florence but it's this whole family and really this whole generation right Baldwin is telling something about African Americans in their in their search for uh, for life and for dignity. Um, against um, against systems and odds that are that are warring against them, as long as as well as their own particular individual vices and challenges too. I think that's a really important framework for for the novel, and it and it helps us see how this novel is really biblical in its scope, in that sense, right? Where it's like, yeah, we have the particulars of of Sarah or Hagar or uh, Joseph um, or Josiah or somebody, anyone, right? But it's it's their story within this broader framework, and we can't really understand their place without seeing the scope that's behind them as well. Yeah, that's the, yes, the hope and, and, and the anguish and the grief and the yearning and all of these things having a kind of transcendent, um, uh, 
ground for them that uh, this isn't just John's story as an individual with some hopes and some yearnings. It's not just Florence's story. It's not just it's not just uh, Florence and Gabriel's mother's story. It's it's a collective sense of uh, of yearning and hope and grief and lament and anguish and all of those things that, yes, they are all each individuals and each of them has been affected in different ways. Uh, but I think that calling this section the prayers of the saints helps capture that kind of transcendent ground that they feel that they're channeling all these various emotions toward. Mm, that's really good. It makes me think too about, um, it makes me think as well about the nature of time, right? Like what, like what is time? You know, uh, it's interesting too, because with, with Baldwin making this movement where we go back in time with, with, with Florence, right? We move back and see some of this, this story, family history, some points of or, kind of origin, the origin of her animosity and resentment towards Gabriel, which is, is, is rooted in this, this, um, this place that his, uh, his mother really favored him. You know, she she favored Gabriel uh, and he was the one who got to go to school. He was the one who got to do all the stuff, even though he squandered all of it, was drunk, was just a wild and sort of, uh, you know, uh, hedonistic kind of um, just aimless person, reckless person. Uh, and Florence suffers uh, because of that. She's she's um, limited from opportunities because of that and, and a real sort of kind of you know, misogynistic sort of, uh, sort of undertaking that she's experiencing. So we can, we can see why she's resentful. We can, we can, uh, we, we now know, right. That it's not baseless. Now, is there a more virtuous way to, to process those things? Absolutely. But we can, we can see the genesis and the origin of, of her, of her particular feelings. And I think, you know, it strikes me that by moving us back in time to see those things, it strikes me that Baldwin is, is actually, um, in in the crafting of the novel is is really um really merciful towards the characters right to to show hey it's not just that florence has an issue here's here's some of here's some of why here here's here's not just you know what she's doing but but why she sort of is this way and you know, that's a lens that's going to be extended to characters that we might think are unworthy of that sort of um, that sort of mercy or that sort of compassion or explanation. So I think the sort of the the the, the time motif of the novel presents readers with um, an opportunity to sort of understand these characters in a in a, a way that's a little bit more compassionate that we might be inclined to if the novel just moves forward on its present timeline. Um how, what what do you think of that? Is that is that a stretch? Is that something that you 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 feel yourself as a reader? Do you, what are your thoughts? No, I think that's the key to the novel. I think it's why it's listed as one of the 100 greatest American novels. Uh, and it's because the humanity of these characters comes through. Uh, if we just had the present 24 hours and a window into what the characters are like right now, and we're not given any sense of why they are all the way that they are, this novel loses its heart. Mm. Um, and uh, and it is Baldwin's ability uh, to move back and forth between time sequences that makes this all work. But by the time we get to the end of this book, we're going to have seen all of these characters in very unflattering lights, and we're also going to have seen very unflattering characters in redemptive lights. And we're going to have a much better appreciation for why uh, ultimately John 
lands where he lands at the end of this book. But we're going to have an appreciation for each of these characters and what they bring to the plot in this present day 24 hours in a way that we otherwise wouldn't possibly have had. Hmm. Like that. Well, what um what should we be looking forward to or keeping our eye open for for those that are um reading along and if, and if you're just listening along that's great too. Uh, hopefully this is enriching for you as well. Um as we turn toward uh Gabriel's prayer. What what sort of things are we going to see what what should we kind of keep in mind for those that are reading along into this next chapter? Well, I think for most folks, it would not be a stretch to say that Gabriel is probably the one that folks would feel would be the hardest to fully humanize uh, at this point of having read the book. Uh, And that's for pretty good reason. Um, He does not come off as the most lovable character uh, at this juncture of of the book. But I think, and and also to, to kind of bring this back within the context of two pastors talking about this, it's it's one of the gifts of really good literature that we see this complexity and richness of humanity because thank the good Lord above that God sees the full humanity of all of us too, because Mm. there are lots of things that uh, I have done and things that, that, that I, I am, I am, I am, prone to doing and being as a human being that were it not for uh, a larger kind of omniscient and merciful perspective of, of creator God to see kind of my own humanness and brokenness uh, that, that that's, that's something that I lean on and give thanks for daily. And Mm. we're, we are through the, the pen of a really good writer given a glimpse into that capacity to be able uh, to see what's redemptive, even in some of the harshest and and uh, most notorious of, of of sinners, so to speak. And so I, I would I would invite us to remember that as we're reading this and seeing some of these characters and the nuances brought out and thinking, oh well, you know, I still certainly don't forgive or give passes to this way of being, but I also now can understand a little bit more why this person is this way. Um, that there's that that's an echo of something that's far larger and more transcendent than us. The the great playwright, the original storyteller, uh, is able to see us in in all this great complexity and 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 a richness of humanity that we can't even see ourselves in. So I'd invite us to remember that as we read forward. But as we go into this next uh, chapter on Gabriel's prayer, this is probably the most loaded chapter in the whole book. There's a lot of yeah. riches in this. So. I would just invite folks to be prepared to uh, understand Gabriel in in much deeper ways uh, through the reading of this next chapter. That's a great way to put it, and I think you know some of these themes we'll we'll dive into uh, even even more as we look at Gabriel, and I think especially some of what you're touching on really makes me think about just how we can see others through a lens of mercy and compassion, and and how but how does that sort of accord with justice or accountability um, or, or sort of um, yeah you know making things right you yeah. know how do how do these things come together and i think that that becomes really interesting a really interesting question that emerges as the novel progresses and i think that'll really move to a, a bit of a sharper point when we look at gabriel's prayer but um yeah it's 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 uh it's a, it's a challenging section it's an important section so I, I i do hope folks that are reading along will will jump into that and even if you don't um tune in and listen in the discussion i think will will still be um enriching for you so 
appreciate everyone that's listening. We encourage you folks to um, hop in the Facebook group. If you have questions, drop drop them there. We'll respond to some of those in the, in the upcoming episodes, and we'll continue to uh, to journey on through this really important novel. I can't wait. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, Austin. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch y'all next time.